0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, And coming up on today's show, we speak to Dame Stephanie Shirley about what it was like to set up an all-female software company in the 1960s.
2: It was considered a woman's career because it was so boring, let the women do it.
1: And a manufacturing revolution involving knitting carbon fiber.
3: What we do when we build carbon fiber is that we make the part at the same time that we make the material. But first, missiles
1: have been traveling faster than the speed of sound since the 1950s, but funding programs in America, China, and Russia are developing new weapons that could evade radar and change direction in the sky. With long-range missiles not part of the New START Weapons Treaty from 2010, the new rockets could enter service in the early 2020s. So what is the technology? How does it work? And what are the chances of a surprise attack? To discuss this, I'm joined by The Economist defense editor, Shashank Joshi. Hello, Shashank. Hello. First, what is different about this breed of hypersonic missile?
0: Well, hypersonic technically means they go above Mach 5, five times the speed of sound. But what's special about them isn't just that they go very fast, it's how they fly. The most interesting sort are called boost glide vehicles, which are essentially uh, very, very fast gliders that skip along the upper atmosphere over hundreds or thousands of miles in ways that are very maneuverable, very quick, and potentially very accurate. Your traditional ballistic missile, the kind we've, we've had since the V2 in the Second World War, goes up these days, very high into space and then shoot back down in a very clean, predictable arc. The glide vehicles separate from the rocket much lower down. They don't go as high. They don't go all the way uh, 1,000 kilometers or or more into space. And then they re-enter the atmosphere and skip up and down in the upper atmosphere for long distances. And because they're in the atmosphere, because they're not in the vacuum of space, they can maneuver. They can go left. They can go right. And you do not know where they will land. Now, that is a very, very useful thing if your interest is in avoiding missile defenses, avoiding awkward countries on the way, or, of course, surprising your adversary.
1: And how much time do you have between when you notice that
0: some missile like this has been launched and when it might possibly land. So once it's gliding, you may have seconds before realizing which particular target it's going to pick. They may be able to spot it, but they would have very, very little time before realizing it's headed for them.
1: And what about possible defenses to it? Is it possible to pluck it out of the sky with another missile?
0: We have to distinguish two types of missile defenses. The sort that defends a big country like America, those are called mid-course defenses. They shoot missiles when they're high in space. They're called exo-atmospheric. Those would probably struggle because these missiles, the hypersonic glide vehicles, they don't go as high, so you can't spot them with radar as early. Uh, You can't shoot them out of the sky in quite the same way. They are more evasive in maneuvering, so harder to strike. So those kind of area defenses, as we call them, would struggle. Struggle. Now, point defenses, a type you would use against a particular site as a missile is homing in, you could probably take on a hypersonic missile because current ballistic missiles go just as fast when they're incoming. But, of course, you can't protect an entire country with point defenses. You'd need thousands of them, and that is too expensive.
1: So what is behind this new technology?
0: Well, we've had hypersonic gliders for decades, right? The Germans experimented with this in the 1920s. The X-15, an American plane, was the first to reach hypersonic speeds and had gliding elements. What's different about this is these things have to go at sustained hypersonic speeds, sustained high speeds for huge distances. That requires a couple of things. You need a very high lift-to-drag ratio. That is, you need something that can really glide for long distances. To do that, you need very sharp leading edges. Not big, rounded edges like the Space Shuttle we're all familiar with, but very sharp, pointy edges. What that means is they generate incredible heat, Managing that heat is the principal problem that designers of glide vehicles face. That's why it has taken so long. We simply have no easy way of building things that will fly at Mach 10 or Mach 15 without simply melting to pieces.
1: Now, in the world of weapons politics, we're always in an environment where one side is creating an advancement and another side is trying to match it and outdo it. Give me some good news. This seems like it's only bad news. What is the prospect for maintaining a sort of peaceful parity with this new weapon system that's not just simply political but also military?
0: Well, I think there's a a few things to bear in mind. One of them is that these are going to be very, very expensive to build and design. if the, the longer range ones that can go, you know, transoceanic distances. So people may not be able to afford to have many of these. I, I read a report by the UN Office of Disarmament Affairs which said for the really big systems, the gliders, maybe you'll only have a dozen on each side. So we're not necessarily talking about sort of churning out thousands like sausages. The other suggestion is that, well, the US and the Russians agreed, look, we won't include glide vehicles in the last big arms control treaty we did back in 2010. But it's possible they may decide that was a bad idea. These things could surprise decision makers. You know, the fear of surprise attack is what has driven some of the key arms control agreements of our lifetime, including the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that's falling apart now. So that sense of fear, particularly in in a future Democratic-led administration in the United States, which is typically more sensitive to arms control – you could imagine a conversation between the US and Russia. I think one of the big issues is that China is at the forefront of this technology. And so far, China is not in really any arms control agreement with the US, with Russia, with anyone. And so getting China into this regime, if we ever have one, is going to be one of the biggest issues for policymakers in the future.
1: Shashank, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And if you like our journalism, subscribe. Go to Economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. Dame Stephanie Shirley, known professionally as Steve, came to Britain in 1939 on the kinder transport that saved almost 10,000 Jewish children from the Nazi regime. She became a software engineer and founded her own all-female software company, Freelance Programmers, in 1962. It came to be valued at $3 billion, and after turning over a quarter of the company to co-ownership, she made millionaires of many of the women who worked with her. She is also a great philanthropist in areas such as autism and in helping to found the Oxford Internet Institute. Her autobiography, Let It Go, is being made into a film due out later this year. I began by asking her what the technology industry in Britain was like for women in the 1950s.
2: Well, there were more women around than there are today, proportionately. It was considered, to a certain extent, a woman's career because it was so boring, let the women do it. And I'm I'm quite serious. It had come out of the clerical sector, administrators and secretaries who wanted to have a go at it. It took some time for people to realize that this was a highly paid job, that it was, in fact, very important to the business. And perhaps the men should be doing it as well. And they came in and they were trained by the women who were then pushed out sideways.
1: Then software, of course, wasn't paid for. It came for free and people paid for the hardware. So what made you decide in the 1960s to create a software company that's really going against the countervailing received wisdom?
2: I think it was my motivation, really. I wasn't going into business to make money. I was wanted to go into business to get a work pattern that suited me and for other women. So it was very much part of a women's crusade. And the way in which I approached it was... Like a social business, I investigated, first of all, whether to have it as a charity, to have this all-women company writing software. Software was what I loved. I loved to do it. I found it absolutely fascinating.
1: So how did you structure the business so that it was friendly to women as they were either working part-time or to raise children or to reinsert themselves into the workforce after taking time away? But I think we went
2: for flexibility to the extreme. People could work part-time, full-time, annualized hours, min-max contracts, of which zero-hour contracts are a special case. However they wanted to work, we had the first job share, for example, when a husband and wife said, can we do one job between us? And we said, well, why not? Let's just try it. So the approach was very much, we want to do this. We have these skills. We have this somewhat reduced availability. How are we going to make it happen?
1: Was there any sort of backlash against this way of working?
2: People laughed. We were not taken seriously at all. We tended not to stress our femininity. We had odd rules like house style, not to wear trousers, which I live in nowadays. They're so much more comfortable than skirts. But we felt that to wear trousers in the early 1960s was a little bit aggressive, assertive. We were very careful about making sure that we fitted in. And the more that people thought it was ridiculous, the more I decided that I was going to very much show them that we could do it this way.
1: Now, there's many studies that show that a diverse workforce, and diverse in terms of gender, but in other contexts as well, but let's look at gender, is a more effective workforce for a variety of reasons. I wonder if you look backwards in a different direction, how it worked in terms of freelance programmers, your company, did you feel that by being almost almost exclusively female, that it was able to do something and outperform in a way that a more heterogeneous workforce, that is both male and female, wouldn't at the, have done.
2: At the time, I don't think I saw anything about the innovation that comes from a diverse workforce. We were very conscious of outperforming. We actually claimed, I do don't—I forget now to the level to which we measured it, that we were 40% more effective in writing software, simply because we didn't waste time, simply because we had that focused solitary time and the act of creation is always a solitary one writing programs is not something you can do as a team
1: what do you think of the opportunities of women in technology today what needs to change
2: in a sense all the overt problems that I was up against basic sex you can't do this. You can't work at nights. You can't drive a bus. I couldn't even open the company's bank account without my husband's signature. And in fact, in, in the whole of that period, male signatures were required if you wanted to hire a car or get a mortgage. So, you know, women were very much second class citizens at the time. All those overt things have gone and one is left with cultural difficulties. And the cultural difficulties start pretty early on. The employers say it starts in the universities. Academe says it starts at school. The school says it's in the infancy. And it does start very early. One of the things where people learn computing as children is with games. And these are very male-oriented games. But somehow, between the ages of about Eight, nine, ten, when girls really like the STEM subjects, and 14, 15, 16, when they're beginning to think in terms of vocational training for some sort of future career, they have lost all that interest in STEM.
1: You came over during the kinder transport and one of the tools by which Nazi so Europe was able to put forward its ideology and into practice was through information technology. Have you thought about how in today's world in which both companies and the state is able to amass so much data on individuals that there's a risk that it will over-concentrate power and the power that state surveillance will have in the age of AI? It's
2: these sorts of issues that In the year 2000, made me co-fund the Oxford Internet Institute, because these are the sorts of issues that it is addressing. Where does this information come from, for example? What does the internet look like in China? I certainly don't even attempt to think I can understand half of what they're doing.
1: And do you have any advice for women CEOs in tech today?
2: Never underestimate yourself. Present yourself at your aspirational level. Get trained and more trained and networked and more networked, and then just go for it.
1: Dame Stephanie, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much. Finally, can you knit a car? Manufacturing is undergoing a revolution. Knitting lightweight materials, such as carbon fiber composites, promises huge benefits. Giant mechanical looms are used to weave these new materials, which are exceptionally strong. But cost remains a factor. Could it be driven down to improve its mass appeal? The National Composite Center is a research laboratory run by the University of Bristol in Britain. It's home to Bertha, one of Britain's largest automated braiding machines. Jules Granville, who works at the National Composite Center, told me more.
3: So Bertha is one of 10 great pieces of kit that we're just putting in this year. We're spending 37 million pounds on it. It is a machine that intertwines carbon fiber, and it looks a little bit like a portal to another dimension. It creates massive tubular structures, about a meter in diameter, and it can go down to the size of about the center of a kitchen roll tube, So it's uh, amazing. You can actually scale up and down very, very quickly, and you can create some amazing tubular structures with it. And carbon fiber,
1: what's so special about carbon fiber?
3: Carbon fibre can do all sorts of things that other materials, more traditional materials like steel and cement can't do. What we do when we build carbon fibre is that we make the part at the same time that we make the material. And so basically it cuts down on a huge amount of waste. And we can also play with the part whilst we're making it so we can literally change the material properties of something as we build it. So what sort
1: of things do you make with it? And then how do you change the material properties?
3: So you can make pretty much anything from carbon fibre that you need as a lightweight structure. So the things that people will probably recognise are things like aircraft wings and aircraft fan blades as well. So if you think of a spoiler on the back of a beautiful race car, you need it to be strong But you also need it to be aerodynamic and you need it also to have a flex. So if you were to build that using a bit of carbon fibre, which we do here quite frequently, you can change the properties of the carbon fibre, put in some very long strands, put in some shorter strands and you end up with the perfect part.
1: Is it more environmentally friendly than other manufacturing techniques?
3: It's pretty much on a par at the moment but it should very quickly start to overtake that because the technologies that we're looking at here at the NCC include a full life cycle analysis. So carbon fibre parts tend to last a lot longer. They tend to be a lot lighter, so you end up saving more fuel and energy. So it's the whole life of the product that we look at here.
1: This is showing so much promise. Why isn't it being taken up even with greater gusto than it already is?
3: I think it is. I think if you look at all of the major engineering firms around the world, all of the major car developers, the plane developers, um, the construction industry, oil and gas and energy sectors, they are all doing an awful lot of research into using those products and changing over from some of the the legacy materials that they, they have used in the past. Jules, this is great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken.
1: And that's all for this week's Babbage. If you like the program, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns.